I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're going to read the first 15 verses. We've already seen Jesus being betrayed by uh, Judas, uh, being abandoned by his disciples, particularly Peter is noted, and we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he's faced a, an ecclesiastical trial, a church trial, so to speak, uh, in the, the, the council, the Sanhedrin, uh, has pronounced a sentence upon him of blasphemy. Now they are bringing him to the Roman proconsul Pontius Pilate so that, they, that he can be tried before Pilate. Pick up the reading in God's Word in Mark 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word and write its eternal truth upon our hearts this morning. A man walks into a bookstore and asks the attendant, where is your, help, your self-help section? And the attendant replied, If I told you, that would defeat the purpose. Have you ever noticed these days the number of words that begin with self? Self-help, self-esteem, Self-awareness, self-confidence, self-preservation, self-concept, self-determination, self-actualization, self-self-self. It goes on. They used to say that the 70s were the me generation, uh, but I don't know that it all started in the 70s or it ended in the 70s because we're pretty self-centered in our day and time as well. And I'm sure that it's not something that has just happened over the last 30, 40, 50 years, but it is actually a very human problem. In fact, it is the human problem. And it seems that human beings, especially in our culture today, that we are consumed with ourselves. And as we study Scripture, one thing that we understand is that this is... Uh, at essence, at the foundation, our fundamental problem, the selfishness of our hearts. And in this passage today, there's a couple of things that I want us to see. 
The first, we see uh, the human problem, our human condition, and, and the problem is our hearts. Our hearts. The human heart is our problem. We might think we have all kinds of problems. We might point out some people who are problems to us. We might point to our circumstances and say, well, these are some problems that we have or I have. But really, fundamentally, at the core of all the problems that we have is our selfish hearts. And we see that displayed here, that it's not just our own personal problem, but it's a human problem. And then I want us to see the divine solution. So we've got a human problem and a divine solution, God's grace through Jesus Christ. Now let's look, first of all, at the human heart in our problem and see what we see here today. And the first thing I want you to notice uh, in reference to our hearts that everyone in this story, in this account that we have before us, is guilty except Jesus. I mean, these people are reeking with guilt. First we have the council, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now these are religious men. Some of them are high priests or chief priests, and they are called to represent the people before God in the temple sacrifices and so forth. Some were, and maybe all of them were, scribes, experts in God's law. They would have been uh, very, very extremely even familiar with the Old Testament. Yet here they are, twisting the law of God until it is unrecognizable. And they're conspiring to put an innocent man to death. A man who never did anything but good to others. Healing the sick. Giving sight to the blind. Opening the ears of the deaf. Even bringing the dead back to life. And here they want to kill him, and they're conspiring to make it happen. An illegal trial in the middle of the night, false accusations. And then we have Pontius Pilate. He's the Roman proconsul. He's over the area of of Judea. And he is guilty as well. If you look at the parallel accounts of Matthew and Luke and John, especially John, Pilate repeatedly says, I find no guilt in this man. Uh, He knows that Jesus is innocent. And it even tells us here that he thinks it's because of the envy of the chief priests that they're seeking to have Jesus put to death. He knows what they're about. Yet he's too cowardly to release Jesus. And it tells us here that he wants to satisfy the crowd even though he knows that it is because of the envy of the chief priests that they want him dead. Then we have the crowd. The crowd is guilty. I mean, only literally days before. Now, it's been a while since we studied that passage, but in time, it was just days before the triumphal entry. Jesus came into Jerusalem just a few days prior to these events, and what were the crowds saying then? They were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And now they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Well, why the change? Well, it tells us that the chief priests stirred up the crowd, persuading them to release Barabbas instead of Christ. And they easily became convinced that Jesus no longer served their purpose. And it's very fickle that they would choose a murderer, a known murderer, a convicted murderer, an insurrectionist, Barabbas, 
over Jesus who never did anything, as I said before, good for them, healing and teaching them. And then we come to Barabbas. Of course, he's guilty. It tells us that he committed murder in the insurrection. He was a freedom fighter, we might call him today. He was someone who wanted to overthrow the Roman government and usher in uh, this new, the, the kingdom of Israel to its, to its rightful state in his mind. He needed to get those Romans out of there, so someone got in the way of that, and he, he killed them. Well, if we cannot identify with any of these groups of people, it is hard to identify with people like Barabbas, I can understand that, or Pilate. But what about the disciples? They're conspicuous by their absence, aren't they? If we cannot identify with the others, surely we can identify with the disciples, the followers of Jesus. They had left everything to follow Jesus. Their, their jobs, some of them very lucrative, uh, their family, businesses, and so forth. But where are they now? They've all run away. Where is Peter, the one who said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And now, when asked if he is a follower of Jesus, it tells us a few verses prior that Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. If we put that in modern language and get it down where we can understand it, they ask him if he knows Jesus, and he says, well, I'll be damned if I know him. Who's Jesus? I've never seen the man before in my life. That's the kind of language he's using. Completely turned his back. On Jesus, So the disciples are guilty as well. Now, as I said before, this passage tells us about the human heart. We can see the condition of the heart as we ask ourselves, what makes each uh, of these different people and groups, what makes them do the things of which they're guilty? The answer to this question will help us understand why we do the things of which we are guilty. Now, I'm going to give away the answer. the answer. The answer to this question is what makes us do the things that we do. I've already given it away in the introduction. It's, it's self-centeredness in our hearts. What we're going to see is that the DNA of sin is selfishness. You know, DNA is the blueprint of your life. It's within the cells and the, the structure of the molecules. Uh, you know, scientists are probably going to criticize me for for uh, getting that all wrong, but your DNA tells you what you're going to be like, your physical characteristics and so forth. So the DNA of sin is selfishness. That's what we see at the bottom of it, at the foundation of it. The human heart is sinfully selfish. That's why we spend so much time in our culture and day talking about the self. We're consumed with ourselves because that's just the way we go. We're bent that way ever since the Garden of Eden. Well, let's look at each of these groups, and we can see the selfishness coming through. First, we have the council, the Sanhedrin. You know, after Jesus uh, raises Lazarus from the dead, we read this in John, in John's account, John eleven forty five. They hear about this great miracle that Jesus has done, and in fact, that's got everybody excited about Jesus, and then... In the next few verses, he's going to go into Jerusalem after raising Lazarus from the dead, and the people are so excited about Jesus' power in raising Lazarus from the dead, that's why they're, they're uh, hailing him as the coming Messiah. Rightfully so, but they were thinking of, of him more 
in the political military way of being the Messiah who's going to do what Barabbas was trying to do, free them from Roman domination. But when that happens between Lazarus rising from the dead and then this week when Jesus rides into Jerusalem in the Passover feast, it tells us there that many of the Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him, raising Lazarus from the dead. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, now we're getting to the bottom of it. What's really got them upset is that their place is being threatened. Their position of authority, uh, their pride, it's all being threatened. Now, as we think about our own hearts, have you ever done anything wrong because it preserved your position of power or authority in your business, in your home, driving down the road in the car? Now, that's when I like to, somebody cuts you off, you're going to exercise your power and your authority and make sure they don't get one up on you. you know, that, that sort of thing is just exposing our hearts. It's the selfishness, self-centeredness. The heart wants to selfishly put you first in everything. That's what was going on with the council. Well, we see it with Pilate as well. Pilate would rather please the crowd than execute justice. He's, he's doing whatever the crowd wants. John, again tells us that Pilate was continuously trying to release Jesus and uh, the Jews cried out and said, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And when he hears that, he gets worried. And what will people think of him? Or will word get back uh, to Caesar that I'm not his friend or that I'm not doing something uh, that would serve his government? So you see, Pilate, his selfish pride kicks in. He was more concerned about how he was perceived and getting ahead than doing justice, which he was in the position of authority to do so. Have you ever compromised to please a crowd? Well, surely all of us have at one time or another. Your heart has this natural tendency to want to be the center of attention, to get your due. And that's what Pilate was doing there. Now the crowd. The, the crowd, uh, the text doesn't tell us exactly what was motivating the crowd, but it's not hard to imagine a likely scenario. When Jesus came into Jerusalem and they were hailing him, they were looking to him as the king who had come and finally free them from the, rope, from the yoke of the Romans. And here we see Jesus before them. He's been beaten up already. They've spit in his face. And he's under the rest of the Romans. He's under their power. He's in shackles. And as they see Jesus, he seems powerless to them. Let's free Barabbas. Now there's a man who's willing to get his hands dirty for the cause. He's already killed somebody, so we know he's effective. Jesus is powerless. See, they were motivated by what was expedient for them and what served their purpose. So again, it's selfish. See, your heart, my heart, 
wants what will serve your needs best. My needs best. What I perceive is my needs, not others' needs. Our hearts are fickle, and it's driven often by our own selfish desires. And then we have the disciples. The disciples took off and ran because of self-preservation. You know, it all of a sudden became too risky to be a follower of Jesus, even though they had all vowed that they would not abandon him. Well, we can all probably say that we've made a promise or a commitment, and we didn't keep it out of self-preservation because it just became too risky. Maybe not physically risky, but our reputation maybe becomes risky at the workplace or at school or wherever it might be or even with our, within our friends. And we compromise even though we had the best intentions of being faithful to the Lord. Surely we can all identify with that. You know, vowing to be faithful and yet falling far short when the heat was on. Well, Barabbas finally murdered someone in an insurrection. That's a little hard to identify for most of us, hopefully. But someone stood in his way, in the way of what he wanted to happen, and they paid the price for it. Well, maybe we can identify with that a little bit because your heart, my heart, tends to have selfish ends, selfish goals, desires for your life, the way you think it ought to go. You're pursuing things that you think will make you happy. And when someone blocks that, man, they better get out of the way because that really will make you angry. If you want to know what's most important to you, ask yourself the question, uh, what really makes me angry? Anger often comes when we do not get what our heart is set upon. Our selfish hearts have a desire, and when it's blocked, it really, really makes us angry. And whoever's in the way gets whacked. The guy gets the promotion ahead of you at work, boy, that really makes you mad. He's blocking your way to the top. So you can see that your heart is set on something for yourself. And it causes us to fall into all kinds of problems. Well, the council was guilty. The crowd was guilty. Pilate was guilty. Barabbas was guilty. The disciples were guilty. I'm guilty. You're guilty. And our problem, fundamentally, is a heart problem. A selfish heart. Paul Tripp, he sends out tweets. I'm, I'm on Twitter, by the way. I'm hip and cool. Uh, probably too old to be on Twitter, but... Uh, he sends out some great tweets, and if you are on Twitter, uh, I recommend being his follower. But he sends out three tweets a day, and one of those tweets he sent out in the last couple of days said, uh, sin is fundamentally meistic. It turns you inward when you are meant to live upward and an outward life. So let me read it again. Sin is fund fundamentally meistic. Uh, it turns you inward when you were meant to live an upward, in other words, love God, an upward life, loving God, and an outward life, loving your neighbor. That's the way God created Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, they had a relationship with God. That was the primary relationship they had, and then they had a relationship with one another. And they were called to uh, fill the earth, subdue it, uh, multiply, to have more relationships but never to be completely self-centered 
when they sat back, looked at that forbidden fruit and said, hmm, that is going to make me like God. That's an absolutely selfish thought. They were in it for themselves. They wanted what, was, what they perceived to be good for them. The serpent had convinced him of that. So sin is fundamentally meistic. At the heart of every sin is selfishness. And what we see is that being self-centered doesn't ever make you happy. You think it does. You think it would. But it just makes you miserable. And it, it makes you miserable because it makes the people around you miserable. It also makes you miserable because it puts you out of fellowship with God. There's an old saying, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. God can only be known in submission to him. He can only be known as your king. He cannot be known as your servant. But yet, a lot of church people treat Jesus that way. You know, I want to follow him so he'll do for me He'll bless me and I can get what I want. But you can't know Jesus that way. You can only know him because he's only, he's a king. You can't know him any other way. He's not anything else but a king. He's lots of other things but a king. But ultimately he is the king. He's sovereign. He's superior. And we have to come to him in submission. So being self-centered doesn't make you happy. It makes you miserable. And you have to understand that's your problem. That's my problem. Paul Tripp's other tweet said, The evil world around you isn't your greatest danger because it's always the evil inside of you that draws you toward the evil outside you. The only reason that we get attracted and fall into the temptations is not because we're being tempted, but it's because of something inside of us that is drawn out to those temptations. It's something broken inside of us. Well, in John 19, it says this, uh, the Jews speaking to Pilate. They said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Where, where are, he, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer, so Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And here's what I want you to see. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So see, we can look at Pilate, the council, the crowd, the disciples, we can say, look, these people are the cause of Jesus' death. If they'd have just done the right thing, he wouldn't have died. But see, that wasn't the plan at all. And even though these people had evil intentions and selfish hearts, God used it for his glory and for our salvation. So here we have our human problem with these selfish hearts, but God has come in with a divine solution. And he's worked it in such a wonderful and wise and miraculous way. Uh, it's almost mind-blowing. We have divine grace entering the picture, entering our selfish world. The third treat from Paul, tweet from Paul Tripp. Since the DNA of sin is selfishness, puts you in bondage to you, 
The work of grace is to rescue you from you. So Jesus has entered the world to rescue us from ourselves, from caving in upon ourselves. Now, how does he do this? Now, as we've seen in our last few studies, if you've been here for the last month, and if you look at the title, if you haven't been here, it says, the blameless is blamed while the blameworthy goes free. Jesus, an innocent one, is punished for our sins in our place. In the passage before us today, Jesus gets the punishment that Barabbas deserved. Jesus is being accused by the chief priests and the scribes and the council, uh, not of blasphemy, which is what they convicted him of, but of being literally an insurrectionist. This man is, you know, he calls himself the king of the Jews when it's Caesar, actually. And they're saying he's trying to uh, do what Barabbas is doing and uproot the Roman government. Of course, that's not true at all. And Jesus and John explains that. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He explains that to Pilate. And that's why Pilate says, well, I find no guilt in him. He's, he's not a threat to the Romans. But, that, but Barabbas here being freed while Jesus gets the punishment that Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, deserves, that becomes a metaphor for us all. It's a symbolic switch. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God. The just... Jesus took justice for the unjust, us, so that we could once again have a relationship with God. God then can return to the center of our lives, replacing ourselves, and that's how we were created to be. We were created to worship Him, to glorify Him. Barabbas is that metaphor that points us to this great truth. God has sent a substitute in our place, to pay the penalty for our sins and to fulfill all righteousness in our place so that he can have a relationship with us, a proper relationship, a a, a Lord and servant relationship, a father to son relationship. It's not something you earn or deserve. You can't simply try harder to love God and others. Well, you can, but you're not going to make a whole lot of progress You can uh, try to be unselfish, but that'll last only for a while. Great illustration I heard one time is this. Uh, A wife comes to a husband and says, look, that that apple tree in the backyard, the apples are terrible on it. They're all mealy and, you know, they've got problems. That is obviously diseased and you need to do something about it. And so the husband says, okay, right, I'll go do something about it. So he goes to the grocery store he buys a big bag of apples and he nails them all up to the tree. And so the tree looks great. It's got all these wonderful, beautiful apples on it. But what's going to happen? Well, the, the trees aren't, I mean, the, the, the apples aren't going to last. They're going to become rotten too because they're not connected to the tree. So just trying harder is like nailing apples to the tree. It looks good for a while, you have a little success. You're like Peter and the other disciples. Yes, even if we die, we will live for you, but pretty soon you're denying him. The apples are rotten. You need to plug into the tree. You have to recognize that you need life outside of yourself, and that life is in Christ. 
It's not something that you've earned or deserved. You can't simply try harder. You have to recognize your own utter narcissism and consumption with yourself and how you have a heart disease of always putting yourself in God's place. And then you have to go to the only heart surgeon in town, who is Jesus Christ, and tell him that you agree with his diagnosis of you and ask him to save you from caving in on yourself. Or to put it in theological, religious terms, you need to see your own sin and misery, your own inability to even do what's right. You need to repent of it, you know, recognize it, repent of it, turn to Jesus Christ in faith to save you. And when you have a right relationship with God, then order is restored in your heart, and then you can begin having a right relationship with others and yourself. You know, the old acrostic, joy, J-O-Y. The priorities are put in order. Jesus first, others second, and then yourself third. That's how we were created to live. God will take care of your needs, so put him first. Now, of course, even those who have embraced Christ are not perfect at this. Selfishness still is a remaining, the, the old nature still around, battling with us. And we fall, and we need to grow in grace. And that's why we need to continue to pursue Christ, to listen to his word, to pray to him, to partake of the sacraments. These are the means of grace. That's what the theological terms were. These are the means by which we grow in grace. We need more of his mercy. We need more of his life in us. We need need more of his help to make us unselfish, to make us what we were intended to be. He's got all life in and of himself. And he can give it, and he offers it freely without money or without cost. You know, Barabbas got free, and I don't know what he did after that. You never hear about him again. But, you know, he's easy to control because, you know, what, how, do you, how do you knock out an insurrectionist? Well, all you do is kill him. He's done. You know, the, the, the problem is over, solved. And maybe that's what happened to Barabbas. But Jesus Christ, oddly enough, accused of being an insurrectionist, actually kind of was a revolutionary. He did start a revolutionary. They put him to death, but they couldn't stop him. That actually started the revolution. They thought they were going to get rid of this guy once and for all. But he rose again from the dead. He conquered not only sin and our selfishness, but death itself. So yes, if you want to have spiritual life, Christ is the only place. He's the only one. And you, you can't stop him. You cannot stop him. And he offers this grace for free. And he's given us means by which we grow in grace. And one is this table that we're about to come to and about to celebrate what he did for us in his, in his death, in his body being broken, uh, his blood being poured out because of our sin. And as we come to the table, it, it's a reminder to us that we need something outside of ourselves to nourish us spiritually so that we can be different than we tend to be. You know, you need food and drink to survive, to live. You need spiritual food and drink to survive and live spiritually, to live an unselfish life, to change. And the table uh, is a way for that to happen. Jesus Christ has given us. He instituted it. He told us, you know, when he was, the night before he was betrayed, As he sat there with his disciples, he said, you know, he gave out the bread and the wine. He said, this is my body. This is my blood. 
take and, and do this in remembrance of me because he knows that we're fundamentally selfish and we'll forget. And we need to be reminded that we're weak, we're weary, we're broken, and we need his healing. We need his life. So we're invited to come and partake of this table, and we need it. We need it. And the Bible tells us that in order to come to this table, we need to have a relationship with him. We need to first recognize our misery and come to him. So we want to invite anybody who has a relationship with Christ, uh, who, who is uh, in good standing in a church, uh, who's, a, who's trusting in the Lord for their salvation. Uh, we want you to invite you to come, but if you're not sure of where you are spiritually, if you're not repentant, if you've never come to that place where you have, uh, where you have a relationship with, with God, then use this time as a time to contemplate what he's done, remembering his death and his resurrection and what we've talked about today. So I want to invite and encourage everybody to come and, and partake of this table if you are prepared to do so. Uh, it tells us, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to profane what he's done. But remember it in the proper way, with repentance. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and uh, ask the Lord to help us.